0: Hello and welcome to Testing Code, a podcast about software development, software testing, and Python. Automated software testing is a huge part of of developing great software. But some new developers don't get exposed to automated tests until quite some time into their learning of programming. But that is changing. New ways to teach programming include automated tests from the beginning. One of the people doing this is Trey Hunter. Trey Hunter is a Python and Django team trainer. He's also a, one of the directors of the PSF, and he's been using automated tests to help people learn Python. We'll talk to Trey about this and more, but first, this episode of Testing Code is brought to you by Talk Python to Me and Python Bytes Podcasts. If you love Pyth- podcasts and Python, and you're listening to mine, so you must, don't miss out on Talk Python to Me. It's the longest running and most well-known of the Python podcasts and includes guests such as Guido van Rossum, Luciano Romalo, and even me. Go deep into the human side of Python things you love over at talkpython.fm. And if you're in a hurry and just want the headlines, don't miss out on the quick rapid fire Python Bytes podcast that I co-host with Michael Kennedy over at pythonbytes.fm. Get the backstory and the latest news with Doc Python and Python Bytes. Subscribe in your podcast client today by searching for Python. Now let's talk to Trey. I first met you at a, uh, a Python meetup in Portland, and it's still the only... Uh, no, I went one more time. So I've been to two uh, Python meetups so far um nice that, <laughs> i do was need-
1: that the first one that, yeah i think that was the first one you were at because you told me i don't really go to these and i don't know if you assumed i was a regular or what even though i didn't live in your city
0: <laughs> yeah and actually the 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 turnout was it was kind of nice because it was pretty small that day because there was some conference going on or something but uh anyway you do a lot of stuff so i want i instead of me trying to introduce you i thought you could introduce yourself as to how you like to be known
1: yeah, um, the, the way that I talk about myself is I say I am a, um, I help Django teams with onboarding and team training, uh, and I do Python training and teaching. I'm kind of transitioning a little bit into trying to teach folks individually because most of the work I do, I've done consulting for years and my work tends to be focused on businesses. But that work of working with individuals is something that I've never really been paid for. So that's something I'm I'm eventually going to try to get into because it's it's so nice to be able to work with someone as an individual, teaching them as much as I like going into companies and working with their folks. It's just uh, nice to be able to work with individuals, possible. But that's that's the way I, I think of myself currently. The last few years, as I teach people Python and Django.
0: Okay. Um. So you've been using. Uh, how did you get into Python and 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 why why Python and why Django?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, a friend asked me when I was in college, actually, he knew I did web stuff. i had done web stuff on my own for years. He asked if I could help him, uh, with his startup over winter break, make a website. It was, or, or the backend for a website. It was going to be in Python. I'd said I'd never done Python before, but I figured I could pick it up because I, I did it for a week, uh, in school, uh, for fun. And it, it seemed like a pretty easy programming language to pick up if you knew some other languages. And so I worked with him on that, and then I just kind of kept working with them. And then I got into another Python project, or rather, I I found a client because I started doing freelance work, and I chose Python and Django as a stack. I kind of had control over that option. And I've kept choosing it because when working in the web world, it was always my favorite thing to work with there. And in general, as a programming language, Python is just a joy of a language to work with.
0: Okay and uh Django's uh, still working for you for whatever you need to do usually?
1: Yeah, yeah, I would say so. I mean, one of the great things about it is if I'm trying to make a quick and uh quick and dirty site or a site that's supposed to last, either way, I mostly do the same switches and toggles that I'm I'm picking there because it comes with authentication built in. It comes with these things that I can customize later. I usually just leave them at the defaults until months down the line though.
0: Okay. That's that's interesting. Okay. Um, Well, one of the things that we wanted to uh, talk about today is since you do a lot of training, uh, you'd mentioned to me that you include um, testing as part of the training and the learning process. And I thought that's that's actually, it's something that's growing actually, I think, because, um, well, so, so let's just, we'll talk about some of the others later, but you, how did Did you always include uh, testing in your training?
1: I didn't. So when I started doing training a few years ago, I did not have tests. I had a a curriculum that was built around a Sphinx website. I had a lot of exercises. I knew from the beginning I wanted to be as exercise heavy as possible because you learn by doing. And I'd, I'd kind of come from a background of having volunteer workshops that I was helping run in San Diego. And... The curriculum we used was always very hands on. So I know I wanted the hands on aspect. I hadn't thought about having each of the exercises have automated tests. So probably a year later, I added, I just thought, you know, I'm going to add tests for my exercises. I tried out adding tests for exercises for tutorial at PyCon. It worked out really well. I added them for all the exercises in my curriculum. I had about 100 exercises at the time, I think. And it was amazing. It was probably the biggest change I've made to my own curriculum was adding those tests. And it's interesting because I didn't and still don't in my main intro curriculum teach testing or test-driven development. But this adding of tests to the exercises themselves gets people exposure to the process, which which is a a really eye-opening thing for them as well. But the biggest thing is it gives them feedback without me having to give them feedback individually. I don't have to necessarily go to each person in the room and tell them whether their code is correct. They know it's correct. They just don't know if it's readable or if it's fast or the, those types of things that the test may not actually test. for.
0: Yeah. Um, so, so you uh, like, let, let's, you said you, you include a lot of tests. How do you deliver those? Are they, Um, I've never been to one of your classes. So, right. Right. Um,
1: Great question. So, Uh, I I have a a zip file that they download from our kind of class website and they actually get a local copy of the class website afterwards. So they have to download a zip file and then they actually have to, uh, depending on the class, pip install a requirements file to get that zip file kind of working. And then they can run a little homegrown test runner. And the test runner is, (laughs) it is ugly and it's code that is doing magical things that shouldn't be done in an actual test framework, but it makes things a little bit easier for them. They don't have to know about unit test or pi test or the dot notation for running specific tests they just type in the exercise name and test.py exercise name and it figures out what it's supposed to do
0: okay test so they what do they type in
1: uh. they type in python test.py and the actual name of the exercise they don't type in the test name they type in the the function name for example maybe uh get hypotenuse if they're writing a function that takes in two numbers gets a, a hypotenuse of the a and the b Okay. Uh, and then it finds where the tests are for that based on some that I used to do a giant dictionary. Then I got lazy and did a doc string lookup for a string search, which is not the way you should write your actual code. It's very brittle, but it hasn't broken down in the last few years. And uh, while it makes it not easy to understand my test framework, which is a downside, it does make it so that it, it runs very um, easily for them.
0: The user interface for it is a command line, but it's easy to do.
1: Exactly. Yeah, the user interface is, is still command line, but it's it's easier than if they were actually learning to run, you know, unit test or pytest, test where you've got to, to type out the name of the test because it's, it's kind of a big step to say I want to run my tests versus I want to run my code. It is a bit of a – there's a bit of confusion that it adds for them there occasionally, and I do explain that I've got a homegrown test runner. You type in the exercise name – this is not the way people usually do testing. The tests that I've written are usual. The test framework itself is not typical, and that's just a kind of a little prerequisite I have to do with the explanation there. I think it is worth it at this point though I may change that process, but that that's not the important part. The important part of my mind is the the tests themselves and the testing process the fact that they are testing their code in an automated fashion as they work through these exercises
0: right so so without um it's a feedback for uh being able to just um like, for instance, uh, if, if uh, an exercise has, what do you say, like maybe 10 tests that go along with it or something, yeah. uh, um, then uh, they can get far, farther along. So the, their initial implementation, maybe it passes one or two of the tests, and then they can look at why the other ones are failing and try to make it better that way. Is Do you see people doing that? or?
1: I, I do. And the reason for that partly is I'm encouraging them to do so um in it, well, inadvertently is the way I would think about it initially, but now on purpose. And this is something that a lot of folks who are teaching Python may not really think about consciously: is the fact that in your exercise for tests, you often have, uh, when you're describing the problem, a few test cases, some inputs, some outputs. You're showing it a command line, for example. Those are usually the easy cases. Those are the the cases that are not, you know, edge cases. In the tests themselves, I often have some more advanced tests that test things that functionality they may not have thought of. Right. And it's just kind of assumed by the problem statement and they might overlook it. And I don't want to show that in the problem statement because it's just really distracting the first couple minutes that you're working on it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting idea and I think it's um uh one of the things I'd like to see more of and and we are seeing more of. So for instance um I'll highlight a couple other places like the uh um uh, there's a website called checkio Mm -hmm. Um, that teaches coding through little, little uh, exercises also. And it, um, it does a a similar sort of thing that um, you tell whether or not your code works by running unit tests on it. Um, And, and then the, uh, the guys at PyBytes are doing these PyBytes challenges and uh, they're, they're doing the same thing. They've got, uh, I think they use PyTest actually in their stuff, but um, similarly they, they, the defining you know it's it's sort of the idea of learning how to define when you're done um but i do like that i like the idea of um having multiple tests so that you can it's not just it's not just right or wrong it's uh it's it's almost there uh, like it passes right. most of the stuff or something um yeah
1: so. well and it's interesting because you know check io and uh the, the bytes of code thing that the, the PyBytes folks have, those run in your browser, which is really convenient when you're doing this as an individual. Uh, maybe you don't have Python even installed on in your machine. You can run it straight from the browser. In fact, you can even do it on your phone if you want. In my classes, though, they've got Python pre you know installed on the machines. We're working in a real programming environment there. So we have a local test, which is, is sort of another level. There's a site called uh, exorcism.io that actually does it that way, where you've got to download the tests, Run it on your computer, and I feel like that step there is even another level of feedback because the command line output—it's—it's it's something you own. It's not something that is meant to be scary or weird. You're supposed to be able to understand it because it's a program you're running on your own computer.
0: Yeah, yeah. And ex- I forgot about exorcism, but the um, the there those are, that's a good point that you part of running PyTest or Python is. You've got to be able to get it working on your computer Um, and uh, and getting something to to get used to some of the tests. I'd like to see – actually, I'd like to see um, this sort of training make it back into the schools uh, because when I – you know, I didn't – I think I was pretty far into college before we started talking about testing, actually, and I think it was just sort of you try out your stuff and see if it works, Uh, and it's just a – um, I guess I'll bring that back. Um, before testing, do pe- people just doing manual tests then and trying it and see if it works? Um,
1: In my uh, classes? Yeah, yeah, that that was what people were doing. And that's what I was encouraging them to do. And they would write their code, uh, check a case to see if it works. They sometimes wouldn't even check the other cases I had on the website because you know people are naturally lazy. Uh, and they're not going to want to check every single case if I show them five or six cases because they... They may not know how to copy paste from the the website to their terminal. Even if they do, maybe they don't want to, you know, copy paste individual lines. And so if they missed things, when I then worked through the problem with them as a room, they would go, oh, I've been selling myself short. I didn't realize I actually implemented it the wrong way because they didn't have these tests to give them that, that feedback there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think that using it as feedback and while, while people are learning and, um, Stuff. So have you had feedback from your uh, uh, from people that have learned from you? Do they, do they like this style of learning, or has anybody talked about it?
1: Yeah, I have. And that's actually um, – I, I get different people saying different things are their favorite. Usually people will tell me something in the ballpark of the exercises are my favorite part of my class. They were telling me that before I had tests, though. Uh, now that there's a test there, uh, I actually get some feedback that people look at my tests – and say, you know, we've been trying to write tests for our team, or we are writing tests, and there's some things I didn't know how to do. I've been looking at your test as a, a model of a good testing style, uh, which makes me think I need to be careful about making actually really good tests when I write these things, because they may be copying what I do in terms of the style I use there. Uh, but yeah, I have had some, some really positive feedback about this process. Some folks have actually said that, when they they were doing it without tests the first couple of days, because I said, you know, it's optional to install the test framework to, to get that working if you can't for some reason. And they didn't. And they were struggling to uh, get things done in time because when they would work through an exercise, they're manually testing it. It's broken. They have to go back to their code. The bad thing is in Python, if you're in a Python shell, you re-import a module. It doesn't re-import. It keeps it cached. Right. And because it keeps it cached, if you reimport it, you try to run it again, you've got a problem. You either have to go manually reload it or exit your shell, re-enter it, set up your variables again, re-import the code, and then run it a second time. That's a lot slower than just running your automated tests again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the automated tests will re-import everything. Exactly. You mentioned people learning faster with it or getting their work done faster. Yeah. Part of it is because they don't have to keep trying to manually test all the different test cases, right? Right. That's still something we struggle with, actually, as an entire industry. I think is trying to get people to realize that testing can make your development faster.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it makes both the 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 exercise part faster because really, I've done the hard work for them of writing the tests. Most people would agree that in test driven development, the hardest part is the the writing of the test initially because it's just the thing that we're not used to. The very fast part, the th- the part that is always faster, is when you're running those tests against your code. You're getting that ed- immediate feedback. I would actually argue, though, I had thought of it being faster as the initial reason I made these. I would say now, though, that it's actually made my exercises more clear. And that's actually a a really big win, I I think, as well.
0: When you're giving exercises, are you giving a, a written statement of what the exercise is also?
1: I do. And that's the thing that they read. They hopefully understand. If they don't understand or if the tests don't line up with that because they say, hey, I ran my tests, they did something different than what I thought I was supposed to write, I've got a bug in my exercise or a bug in my tests or both. And so this is really encouraging me to have an exercise that has clear inputs and clear outputs. Because good exercises should have clear inputs and clear outputs. If I can't write a good test for my exercise, it's probably not a good exercise. It's vague or unclear.
0: But it's also giving them another takeaway, not just a testing style, but one of the things they can take away from this is a lot of examples of this is a description of a problem and how to translate that description into a set of tests.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, because actually they can see, uh, <laughs> I've often done this a lazy way, where my um, first couple examples, I copy-paste, I, I, I use Vim, and I, I change it into a from a, a shell output to an assert statement, and voila, I've made a test. I have the inputs, I have the outputs. Instead of being a little copy-pasted shell example, it's now a, an assert shoved into one of my various tests there. And that's something they can see, that uh, very basic tests simply involve copy-pasting the things you were already manually testing.
0: Yeah, and also the an example of sho- doing tests small. So a, a test is testing one aspect of the solution, not, um, not one giant test that tests everything.
1: Yeah, and I'll often start, the way I usually write them is that the first ones are the small ones. The first ones are it's going to fail for you know, an empty list input or it succeeds for that. Maybe it does a certain thing, then one element, two elements. And then I'll sometimes combine a couple of them. Because one thing I do want to make sure is I'm kind of combining the idea of not unit test and integration tests, but smaller tests and bigger tests. And that if I've got a, a somewhat complex series of inputs, I want to test maybe a couple of cases at once, just to make sure that they don't both work independently and not work together. But those are usually rare. Most of my tests are the more, um, individual, uh, unity type of uh, assertion that I'm making there. And they can see that, that there, there's very few of the bigger tests in there.
0: Yeah. Um, but the, the, uh, it's kind of good that you do do some of the big tests as well, because if there's a, if a test is checking, um, you know, regardless of your philosophy about that, um, I'll, there's good reasons why a lot of people think that, uh, a test should focus on one aspect and test that. However, not all tests do and tests written by other people aren't always going to be like that. So, uh, being, being able to look at, uh, the output of a test and look at why it failed, um, it to make sure that you're understanding the assertion error. And, um, because like I was actually going through an example that we'll talk about later, but, um, a uh, similar sort of problem. Uh, a a an exercise has a test that checks two different things, and it failed, and I didn't know why. I couldn't tell just that by the failure that there was something wrong. Um, it was it was that um, it was actually I'm being vague, so I'll be more specific. You had one test that, that had um, uh, not only does the input and output is that correct, but if you pass in something wrong. Does it assert in the correct way
1: oh interesting,
0: and having that combined in one test um, confused me at first i 'm like i 'm doing this right oh i didn 't check for incorrect input
1: yeah well and, and that 's something that i've i've actually struggled with that, and that uh, this is an interesting um, uh, i don 't know what i 'd call it but basically an interesting scenario of having people who are running tests who are the least familiar with tests and testing of anyone who i 'm going to have run test in any of my code at all because they are doing it for the sake of learning something new. And so they're not familiar yet with the process of testing oftentimes or especially with Python itself. And so when they see something like assert equal, and we'll talk about why this is assert equal instead of an assert in uh, input output or output input, they see that that line fails and it tells them the two things are wrong. They don't know what the input is. And so I often will try to avoid using a variable for the inputs and outputs uh, that isn't very close to that assertion because I want it to be shown automatically in the traceback uh, there, which is something that they're not going to know to go dig in the code necessarily. I don't want them to have to go pop open the test file unless they uh, they really need to to understand it. And so it's, it's kind of changed the way I write my tests as well to appease this particular audience oftentimes.
0: So there is an elephant in the room. The elephant is, I know you use unit test and not PyTest. Yep. yep. <laughs> I don't have a lot against unit test. Um, I just really love PyTest better. Yeah. So tell me why why unit test and, and why not something else?
1: So uh, I have thought about rewriting my test from unit test to PyTest because they're in a class-based model, which actually isn't the worst because I've got multiple classes in a module. I might actually keep with that even if I was doing PyTest. The bigger thing though is self.assert equal, self.assert greater than, all these types of methods, they really give my students the wrong impression potentially that Python is a language that loves its classes and that it loves camel case as well and that it loves this kind of, uh, X unit style sort of Java world of object oriented programming, uh, in the, the sense of writing tests. And that isn't necessarily the case. So PyTest, the actual tests themselves, I find easier to read. The reason I started with unit tests and the reason I've continued to use it is my test originally didn't require any pip install. In my intro class, I don't actually require for any of my curriculum a pip install typically, depending on what it is we're, we're teaching or doing. Usually we're focusing on Python fundamentals, which means standard library. Once I require a pip install, they often need some kind of extra access, root access on the server that they're on, or if they're on a Linux machine, administrative access on the Windows machine they're on. They need to right-click and open the command prompt in a, a different setting to get that. Uh, they often can't just type pip. Sometimes they need to type, you know, Python uh, 3-m, pip, that type of thing. On different machines, you have slightly different scenarios. If you're on Python 2, which a lot of the companies I teach are still learning in Python 2, I'm teaching them in Python 2, even though they know they have to switch, uh, it's even harder then because pip isn't bundled with Python 2 unless you're on a newer version of 2.7, which unfortunately is not always the case for some of the servers they're on. So not having to pip install is a really big motivator there. I actually do require them to make a virtual environment and pip install for a lot of my classes at this point, though. So the only thing holding me back now is the sharing of tests and exercises between courses. I have workshops, I have classes, and I'll often reuse similar or the same exercises between these uh, entities because I'll either expand the exercise or just literally copy paste it. Because if we're learning about comprehensions, list comprehensions in a workshop, there's no reason I can't do the same exercises when I teach that in a class setting. So I use unit test for simplicity, not for the student's sake. Well, it is for the student's sake, but it's for the student's sake, not in the sake of reading the code, but in the sake of that setup, because that setup time is really precious when we're on site together. We only have so many hours together.
0: Reasonable. Although all of those we can work around.
1: <laughs> yes. that Well, many of those you can work around or all, you're right. All of them you can work around, but it does take more work on my part and sometimes some extra, very deep thinking about uh, how to deal with the particular setup at a particular company.
0: Fair enough. For instance i'm I'm just gonna get a touch on one one of the things that we um we use I use at my company is uh, we we have a um a fairly annoying firewall um so uh, it isn't just even if you can install Python it isn't just a matter of pip install from somewhere else because that requires uh, proxy settings to get that right. to work um however, um, so instead of having anybody deal with proxy settings, uh, th- everything that I, we use for like a particular set of tests, we can put we we have other dependencies as well, not just PyTest. Um, we can put those in a um, in a shared directory somewhere, and and point um, point to requirements file at that, and so nobody has to even have a uh, outside of the company connection to get all that to work. But anyway.
1: Right. So what you're saying is, you can kind of take the pytest uh, installation zip file and have them run the whole setup.py locally to, to get that set up. Yeah, um,
0: no, we just use pip install. Uh, oh,
1: right. Yeah. Pip. Well, right. If you have pip, pip install the zip file locally.
0: Yeah. 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 Which. Um, so I. You know, we we have we're up to Python 3.6, so we can we can assume that. Um, yeah, you're lucky. <laughs> but you, I mean, you're you're having to do something. Even with virtual environments. So virtual environment doesn't come free in 2.7, does it?
1: Um, no, it does not. So the, the only reason I'm using virtual environments is because I'm using pip. And if I'm using pip, I don't want them to have to pip install as an administrator because that, that creates a lot of potential headache. That might not even be possible. Uh, and so we're using virtual environments. But you're right. Virtual environments do not come uh, with Python 2 at all. You actually have to pip install them. If you don't have pip, You've got a situation. So the the problem with PIP installing them is you then need administrator access just for that. However, usually if you have a newer version of Python 2 and you're on PIP, the administrators of that box typically have been kind enough to have some kind of virtual environment floating around in your path there. So that's actually rarely been a problem. The usual problem has been you're on an old enough version of Python that we don't even have a PIP we have to make a virtual environment to even get access to that PIP, or we might be stuck on, you know, easy install or something weird.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, hopefully that will go away soon. Um, yes, but-
1: I hope so. Python 3 will fix all of this. And I, you know, I always love working with clients who have Python 3 because it makes my life so much easier.
0: Definitely. So you do the in-person training or the uh, training for businesses. Yep. Do you travel for that or is it mostly in the San Diego area?
1: I do. So I, I do have clients who are local or semi-local. Uh, I do also do remote training, but usually remote training is followed up by on-site training. Uh, so I, I do a mix of both. Uh, so I've I've traveled so far only across the U.S. Uh, I'm open to other travel, although sometimes international travel can add complications in terms of income and and that type of stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I do travel for that.
0: Okay. Then you're adding some some type of in-person one-on-one training now as
1: also. So you said? Yeah, so it's not one-on-one training. Uh, the, you, you mean working with individuals that I mentioned earlier? Yeah, so what I'm doing now is uh, I'm adding this thing called Python morsels that I started a, a few months ago. And uh, Well, actually, I started it before that. I guess I, I sort of soft-launched it a few months ago uh, to the folks who were on my mailing list. And I've essentially taken those exercises that I mentioned that I use for my courses that I've got over 100 of at this point And I'm taking the ones out that are my favorites, not my favorites because they're just my my favorite exercise I wrote, but because they're the ones that in the class together, I usually like to do first in an exercise section because it really encourages thinking in a Pythonic fashion, that we're encouraging our brains to think about the tools that exist in Python but not in, say, another programming language we already knew because a lot of the folks I'm teaching have some kind of programming background. And their mind is uh not tainted by that background but it has the baggage of that other language because when you're moving between languages you want to do things in the way that's idiomatic in that new world so i'm taking those exercises and releasing them uh one every week uh with tests with the exercise description uh the problem statement goes out monday the solutions go out wednesday uh to individuals and i'm i'm charging for that but there is a a free version of that uh as well there and so i'm I'm kind of taking the thing that i do in the corporate world for businesses and i'm releasing that to individuals and there are actually some folks who are in teams who have their whole team signed up which is kind of exciting because that means that i'm i'm delivering value to a company that wouldn't pay for me to come on site probably but want some kind of ongoing learning for their own team there
0: that's great yesterday i said hey um trey can you send me a few of these yeah and you did and i read through them and um, and one of them I read through completely without doing the exercise, and then one of one of them I tried. You know, I honestly tried to do it as is, but I had to convert all the tests to pytest first before I could figure it out. Man, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. You, I woke up this morning to an email from Brian that said your tests are broken. I fixed them. And I clicked in the file, and I stared at it for a little bit, and I'm thinking, what's different about this? It looks a little different. Oh, this is using pytest. That's that's funny <laughs> because I. You know, I really thought about this seriously when I was uh, starting Python Morsels and that I thought maybe this is the opportunity for me to convert my test from unit test to PyTest. I didn't yet, at least, because I still have not had an exercise where I require a pip install. We are on Python 3. However, at the point where I have even just a pip install, it either requires explaining what a virtual environment is, which can be a little bit of a mess if someone doesn't know about them. They should, but... It's a a difficult thing to explain or explaining how to install something with administrator access if you're not doing a virtual environment there. And neither of those things are an easy startup cost, whereas right now the only thing that I require is you have Python 3 installed, you can get access to uh, running Python and then the test file somehow within your IDE or whatever it might be. Because a lot of folks who they've installed Python, they often install PyCharm. They don't necessarily know how to, to pip install or get a virtual environment set up. And that's something that I don't want to require them to do on day one or week one there with my exercises.
0: That's completely reasonable. But you could send both.
1: You're right. I could actually. And that, that that's honestly something that um, maybe I should consider doing in the future is taking all my tests, sending them the unit test. Or even what I could do is I'll send them the unit test away and say, if you want to run this. Uh, with a, a little bit different output, you can run it through PyTest. PyTest will run those just fine, even though, though my tests might look a little uglier for you to read. Uh, you know, you can still get the same output at least. So that, that's even something I could do there before I rewrite the tests.
0: Yeah, and actually, that's um, that's one of the things I was uh, I did initially. I ran your your unit tests through PyTest because um, because I like the default that that PyTest uh, runs them in the order they appear in the file. Um, yeah, and uh, and, you know, that, that helps a little bit, but, um, anyway, yeah. um, no, the, the unit test is very capable as well. It's just like the things that you brought up, like the insistent on camel case, um, and that you have to have it in a class is, uh, is a little, it's a little jarring after looking at Python code to have to look at the, that sort of stuff. Um, but anyway, the, uh, I'm not going to harangue you too much about that, but if you ever need any help converting some, uh, some some of your uh test exercises to to pytest i'd be willing to help out with that
1: well you know i've i've heard you know the person who wrote the book on it so
0: <laughs> yeah i know that guy yeah. <laughs> i want to talk about morsels a little bit if people want to get these weekly things we may as well plug it right now what's the url again
1: uh so the for the free ones it's uh try.pythonmorsels.com try.pythonmorsels.com for the paid ones it's just pythonmorsels.com so uh, this is something I've actually had that try URL up for a little while, but I, I kind of just experimented with it um, while I was at Pi Tennessee this year kind of telling folks about it just to see what they thought of the free exercises and whether it interested people enough to to end up paying for the um, uh, ones that actually cost money. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to pay for the ones that cost money. You don't have to put in a credit card any of that. If you want just the four ones that are, are free, feel free to do them and call it a day and go do all the other various websites. There are a lot of other places on the internet to, to work through exercises. Uh, I wanted mine as a kind of more curated, very explanatory fashion. Uh, and so there, there are those free ones folks can get, just sign up and get for free.
0: So I want to give you my reaction in real time. I haven't told you this at a of time of, of, of uh, my experience with these so far. Yep. I encourage people to do it. I heard about these a couple months ago and and I figured, you know, I already know a lot about Python. I don't need to I don't need the extra stuff. However, you've spent, you've obviously spent a lot of time making these uh, very, like you said, very curated. There's a few things about this. So what you end up getting is you get the, the original problem description. You've had to edit these and, and whittle on them so that they're, they're fairly concise, but clear. Yeah. And then you get the test file and being the kind of the test head I am, I usually read the test file first and then read the problem description. And then we re- go back and read the tests and then try it out. now the i was one of the things I was unex- that was unexpected and awesome is is two things I guess uh, first is that you do have that exact that there is those examples of how to translate a problem description to tests. and this is this is something that really we need to we need to do more of in school and in colleges and in, even in high school is how to convert requirements a uh, problem description is another word for requirements it is how to how to convert that to um to code and and to te- test code and should it be one giant test should it be a bunch of tests how do you do that um we had just assume that's easy it's not easy and then so those are some examples of that but then you i like that the the problem use uh the couple ones that i've read so far you started with well this is the obvious way to do it um this is the obvious way to do the uh, the problem statement
1: and you mean you mean in the solution email
0: yeah in the solution email it's like oh here's here's one of these things but we know it doesn't solve it solves the a couple of the tests a couple of the requirements but it doesn't solve others and then you also give bonus um requirements so um the the things there are a little bit more advanced so um so you know, people that are like maybe the the original problem statement was so easy, but there's some like twists to the language that you need to know to understand the rest of them. Yep. And man, two problems in, and you stumped me. But like for instance, one of the ones was a date time thing. So you're comparing dates, and you um, deviously told people you've got dates that come in as a as a string, two two dates, and then you have to return the one that's like the, I guess the earlier one or something, yep. but you said it isn't normal date times. You're allowing things like March 65th. Yes. <laughs> just, uh, just to say, don't use date time. If you know date time, good, good for you, but that's not going to work for these tests. Yeah. And, uh, and that was fun, but you ended up, you did, you did also show the, if you're really doing this in code, how to do that with date time, you showed that in the solution. But the thing, uh, I'm beating around the bush, but you explored the problem space with the solution. You're not just giving one solution, you're giving multiple solutions and the trade-offs and talking about like, uh, um, this was a different, I guess a different exercise, a a nested if statement, um, that's doable, but, or maybe, yeah, that was that exercise, a bunch of if statements. You can do that, but it's confusing and it's not really that readable and showing the different trade-offs. And I that's that's also part of learning to code is learning to be able to um, write a solution, even if it's ugly, and then look at it and go, I don't want to have to maintain that I, and to refine it. Maybe it's cleaner. And if you're in a hurry, great. Maybe that's one of those places where you stick a to-do statement to say, this is ugly. Um, these need comments. Uh, but uh, I, I just really like that. And I think you're doing a good job with that.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I'm, um, uh, the folks can't see me, but I'm kind of beaming now a little bit. I'm very happy to hear this because that's the, the, the way that I was going into it and what I was hoping people would take from it is you can be an advanced Python developer. Uh, in fact, there's someone who I know who's a, a core developer of a very large Django project or, or, or well, actually of Django itself, um, who's been working through these and told me, these exercises have actually learned at least something from every email in terms of perspective or something I didn't think of. Even if I knew how to solve it that way, it just didn't occur to me at the moment because there's that initial moment of even if you're a beginning programmer, you get the, uh, what would I, I guess the, the confidence boost of I got the test to pass, which is a, an achievement in itself. And then there's the next level of, did I write this in a way that is maybe the most idiomatic or more idiomatic or, or in a fashion that I would like as, as far as uh, optimal readability with my code. And so walking through the various ways to solve it, it's really, uh, dissecting a problem, hopefully not until you've, you've killed it, but until you've, you've studied it enough that, uh, you can really wrap your mind around why you might solve it in different ways. And it, it makes me so happy to hear that because these exercises I've, I've spent a long time on these in my courses, uh, and this is something we do in class together when I'm on well, I'm site with a company, is we walk through various solutions, and I don't usually do it myself. This is something where I'll ask the room, we're doing mob programming, how would you solve this? Someone shouts out an answer. I ask them to walk me through it, and they, they usually get a little flustered because I'm putting someone on the spot to tell me what to type. Someone else steps in and says, no, I did it this way. And then we've got a dozen different ways to solve the same problem. And we kind of discuss which way is the best way. And that's what I'm trying to do in an email format. And so it's uh, it's really exciting to me to write these because afterwards I have the feeling of accomplishment of I've kind of explored this problem space in a way that feels fun to me as someone who's gone through this problem. So I hope actually folks who are working through the exercises, and I actually need to talk to more folks about this, I hope people are doing the same thing. You don't just solve it one way you think about maybe a couple of different ways to solve it.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in like, for instance, um, uh, a couple settings that people are used to, uh, if they've gone through school or they've actually done a job interview is Mm -hmm. you've got one shot. Um, right. Uh, what's the answer? How, How do you solve this problem? Um, in a test or something or, or on a whiteboard in a job interview. And, um, and actually that's one of the things, um, uh, this wasn't going to be part about job interviews, but I I interview people as well, um, and the if if you don't know this already, um, don't try to solve it in the most elegant, obvious, awesome way right away. One of the things, one of the reasons why coding examples are on whiteboards and stuff happen in interviews is to talk about the problem and um, to. to write the obvious way down and then go, well, um, this is, this might work and I'm doing this, but, and then step back and say, yeah, some of this is a little bit ugly and I don't, I haven't solved this part of it and, and do iterative programming on the whiteboard if you need to. Um, right. Yeah. That And that's a, it's, it's a learned skill also of of being able to come back and erase some of your code and try it again and tr- explore the problem space. As, if you've it got time.
1: It absolutely is. Yeah. The, um it, it's interesting because that that's a perspective i hadn't thought of before that you know i haven't interviewed in a long time either on either side of that table because i i do uh work with businesses mostly consulting work and uh, the last time i was interviewed i actually remember i solved the problem and i solved it in a way that i said you know this is maybe not the best way to solve it but it's a way to solve it and i think it's pretty good there might be a better one they said what's another way and i said well here's a worse way to solve it which is you know bitwise shifting i think it was something involving mod 2 And, uh, they said, that's interesting. And I said, you know, I, I don't like this way of solving it though, because it might be more efficient, but it's also just not clear. They said, what's another way to solve it? And And I had to think up another way. And it was, it was an interesting process for me, but I do feel like that's an acquired skill in itself is the art of actually interviewing there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, I always thought, actually, I don't have time for this, but I think it'd be cool to have somebody as a service, um, do mock interviews for people. Um, you could even do it over right? Skype of like, pretend you're trying to get a job here. Um, uh, like let's do some practice interviews. Uh, so
1: I like that because that's one of those that I've, I've told folks who I, I talk to a lot of folks who are getting into programming, uh, either from coming from a code school or running it on their own. Cause I go to my local study group every week. And one of the things we talk about oftentimes is they say, you know, I'm not applying for jobs cause I'm afraid to interview. I said well apply for a job that you don't want and interview there <laughs> because if there if it's the the right problem domain then you're getting practice interviewing by going to that job and it may turn out you actually want to work for that company. You know you don't want to waste their time or your time but uh, go to a company that's a reasonable reasonably good fit but not your dream company and at least interview there first.
0: Yeah. Or even like so the first time I tried something like that I was uh, I don't know, a few years into my engineering career um, and a management position opened up and I applied for it and I went through the internal interviews and they said, a couple of them said, do you really think you have a shot at this? And I said, no, I don't think I'm qualified, but I want you to tell me why I'm not qualified. Um, so that I can, uh, so that I can work on those things. So the next time a manager position opens up, I can be qualified. Right. But anyway, and you're doing all this in like a couple pages. So this is not, um, I want to highlight this also these email things are not time consuming. You can probably do them, uh, try it over lunch and still get your sandwich eaten. Yeah. And then think about it for a little bit. So you get it on Monday, try it at your Monday lunch. Think about it for a while. Try to get on Tuesday and then you get the answer on Wednesday. You're sending the answer with all of this exploring is just still just a two or three, two, three, four pages of text is all. Good job, and I hope it's successful because I think it's great. Awesome. I would be happier if you also sent PyTest versions of those. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> that, is, that is on my long list of features now to consider <laughs> in the future. Um, yeah. And, you know, one of those things is that the fact that you just mentioned it's a short exercise. No, nobody really knows this because it's, you know, a behind-the-scenes thing. But as I'm coming up with these exercises, I think I came up with a really good one. And then often what happens about half the time is I go, oh, wait a second, I can't make. I can't whittle this down into a small enough format to fit in a good Python morsel exercise. It's too long, and then I end up adding it to the list of rejected exercises. And I wonder if I'm going to end up making like a B sides of this one day, where I've got the longer ones, the shorter ones, that kind of thing.
0: Oh, that'd be awesome. I, there'd be people that are up for that too. The the weekend projects.
1: Right. Yeah. Maybe um, months down the line when I have enough of them.
0: Yeah, but the the one of the things that I wanted to uh, mention before we go. Oh. The thing I learned just this morning is mm-hmm. if you have a keyword argument and you want to force it to be a keyword argument and not allow um, allow it to be passed in not is the whole putting a star in the middle of between uh, between normal arguments and keyword only arguments did not know yeah. that was a thing.
1: So yeah, And that's something that I, I mentioned in the last blog post I wrote on keyword arguments, but a lot of folks kind of skipped over that section. Because they didn't, uh, they, you know, they, they were skimming the article and went, I already know about keyword arguments, which you do, but you know them from the Python 2 world because that's what we're taught still. Even though we're all, a lot of us are using Python 3 is we skip over that required keyword argument thing. So I actually wrote that article specifically and a lot of my blog posts specifically for Python Morsels folks to link to that explanation because it's something that, uh, we often don't get exposure to in intro courses.
0: Yeah. Well that's i I'd encourage people that that want to try to come up with topics for blogging also is mm-hmm. uh, when you get stumped at work and you have to look Google something to look it up, um, write a blog post about that um, because you just learned it. you need to solidify the learning and that's a good topic for a blog post
1: that is the best time to write a blog post That's actually where all my posts come from is either I got confused by something or someone asked me a question. And I tried to link them to an explanation and I couldn't find a good one. And then I went, well, wait a second. I could write an email explanation, but how about I write a blog post and link them to that instead? And I'll usually try to do that, you know, down the line. So that, that is the best time to write a blog post. Absolutely. If you are a beginner and you are stuck on something, write a blog post.
0: And that, that. That's the absolute best advice that I've ever given that I don't follow myself. But I should. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, one of the things you said you didn't you don't uh, address test driven development um, really directly in your classes, even though or you're teaching, even though you're kind of doing that because you're writing the test for them anyway. Um, um, is that on, on purpose or just something you don't want to address or.
1: You know, it, it is on purpose. So learning good test practices while learning a new programming language, even if you know another programming language, it's like trying to learn, and this is uh, folks at my study group have told me they're trying to do this, they're, they're learning Python and they're learning Vim at the same time. It's cool if you want to learn Vim. It's great if you want to learn Python. Learning them at the same time is difficult because you're not comfortable with your text editor. You're not comfortable with your programming language. You, you need to be comfortable with something when you're learning something new. So it's nice to to separate the, the moment that you're learning about, say, Python And the moment that you're somewhat comfortable with that, and now you're learning about testing. Learning about the two things at the same time, I find to be a little bit overwhelming. And so, and and that's actually a feedback I've gotten when I do try to teach uh, test-driven development on day one, is it's difficult and frustrating for people to figure out how to write good tests while they are also figuring out how to write the programming language that they're writing the tests in. So it's a little bit diving too deep there, I think, for a lot of folks.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's separating uh, learning one thing from... Learning the other. Yeah. How about in your personal work? Where does testing fall when you're writing um, your own code?
1: So in my own code, um, it's interesting because my my own code, if it's a website, I want tests for the, uh, the main flows that matter. But if it's a website and it's pretty static and I don't have much actual business logic going on, I actually don't really write too many tests. And this is a habit I picked up uh, that's not a great one because the, the world of testing on front-end is changing, uh, that it's it's tricky to test for look and for feel when it comes to a website. And so because my own work is uh, very web-based, um, mostly because I'm working for myself, I'm not even really doing much consulting anymore. Uh, I, I'm focusing entirely on training for the most part for clients, which means my own code tends to be one-off scripts exercises, uh, very small programs I make for myself, or sometimes open source projects. The open source projects have to have tests because I know if they don't, someone's going to get upset with me and, and open an issue on GitHub. And there's that there's that peer pressure motivation, but there's also the motivation of, I don't want someone running my code unless there's tests, if it's you know a real open source project there. Uh, if it's my own website, I actually don't have tests for some of my websites, not because I shouldn't write tests for them, but because I'm lazy and there's very little functionality, it is pretty much a URL, a view that does nothing, serve up an HTML page.
0: So you don't even look at the website?
1: Well, oh, that's a good point. I do look at the website. <laughs> there are manual tests. Yeah. And so you're absolutely right. I do have tests. I have a manual testing process, and it is go to the page, hit F5 to refresh or Control R to refresh, make sure it works, and deploy the website uh, so you're right, I do have a testing process there, but it is a manual one by necessity because uh, writing the automated test for that, it is actually it would end up being less effective than my manual tests because I'd be able to check things easily like 200 versus 404, but I wouldn't be able to spot check the copy and the CSS on the page as easily.
0: Right. That's why I asked that is because in environments where you have uh, both manual tests and automated tests there's a, there's this trade off that you always have to do is is the are the manual tests more painful than the the automated tests um, right and also and there's a like what could break like as like you said if it's a static site that's got hardly any business logic for instance um on my blog one of the things i'd like to add is because some of the articles are as old as like you know 2014 or even earlier I'd, some of the links are gone. So I've referenced other things then that aren't there anymore. So uh, some sort of way to go through and, and check all the links to make sure that they actually end up in a valid web page. I probably should do that at some point. Right. Um, I'd also like I, I, what I'd like to have is it is some, something that could go out and make sure that the URL that I go to isn't one of those squatter sites. That's just sitting there with a bunch of ads in it. Also,
1: that's a good one. Yeah, that's one that, um, I, I was going to say here, you know, I probably don't need automated tests for a while because we talked about this earlier, but I'm, uh, trying to kind of practice a, I guess you could say a lean startup, uh, mentality of, uh, whenever I have a website or launch something new, I try to keep as few pages on the website as possible, uh, as little, um, unnecessary parts as possible. Yeah. And so there's very few pages on my website, which means, I don't really have much to check there as far as 404s. However, I don't check any external links. I don't often click through on my old blog post to make sure they continue working years later.
0: Yeah, I don't get that unless... So that's one of the reasons I also have comments open is because people will tell me, hey, this right? link, this link's broken.
1: That's <laughs> the best test as an, an upset user who wants to let you know that something's broken.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, it's great. But anyway, um, I love that... And I also brought that up because I think that people need to, there is some stress around testing this, this whole, I should be testing more, but if you, there's reasons to not, if, if it's, if it's not going to break, um, you don't, you know, because you're using it all the time, you'll know it. Or if somebody else is using it all the time and they'll know it and they'll let you know, that's a reasonable test process for some things. Um, it's probably not a reasonable test process for like you know launching a rocket or you know some heart monitor, but uh, but for a, for a website that's just got some information on it, that's probably fine.
1: Um, well, and for internal tooling, that's a big thing. And some of my clients will have something that is a whole bunch of code. It's only used for an internal process. No clients going to be unhappy when it doesn't work. It, the user of the product is very close or maybe the same person as the creator of the product. And so if something's broken, they know because they noticed it's broken in their own use of it. And, so that, and also the code doesn't change much because they're not stagnant products, but they change very, very slowly. And so their manual testing process only has to spin off every time a change happens so that those automated tests actually don't get them much. However, there are some things that are a pain for them to test manually uh, when they're doing it they could take those pieces, look at the tests that we've done in the exercises and go, Oh, I'm going to be inspired by this and write a test just for that piece.
0: Yeah. The, there's also um, the, one of the things I actually just talked with uh, Anthony Shaw about um, the need for uh, testing around DevOps tools. Um, so it's like a lot of, like you're saying, a lot of these internal tools that people don't generally write tests for them because they're their only client. However, the impact of them breaking has a potential like dollar loss too, if they're trying to push out a fix or a feature or something. And for some reason, their, their, uh, DevOps process is broken because one of the tools, you know, went down or, or a requirement changed and, and, uh, they didn't, didn't push out one of the, one of the databases or files or whatever. Um, that, uh, that really probably should have had some tests around it if there's a time or dollar impact to the company. But anyway, but, uh, especially for, for learning, I like, uh, I like more, uh, I like more testing earlier in the process. So good job, Trey.
1: Um, excellent. Thank you.
0: Um, so before we leave, uh, any other bits and pieces you wanted to, to talk about before we,
1: um, I guess I, no, I didn't really mention my introduction that, um, I do a chat every week for Python folks. Uh, I may change the the uh, amount that I do that. Currently, I do it every week. Uh, I have a mailing list thing. I send out you know the chats and the blog posts and some other kind of useful links I find on the internet because I've got my own queue of kind of favorite PyCon talks and such. Uh, and then there's there's always Python Morsels, this thing we talked about that I, I want more people using because I want more feedback on. And so the URL I'll give for that is not pythonmorsels.com but the free one try.pythonmorsels.com. Uh, then you can just Google my name to find the other stuff. trayhunter.com com, and I'm Treyhunter everyone on, everywhere online because my name is unique, so it's, that, that that was easy.
0: That's nice. Uh, th- I I'm glad you brought up the uh, the chat because um, I have actually been pointing people to that uh, when I hear pe- so occasionally I'll get people to say I really want to I don't have anybody doing Python around me and I'd like to go to a meetup and and there's not meetups around here. Um, I say well you should just start your own. Um, or maybe not. Um, but, but I think the the, the chats are a similar, uh, experience where, um, it's an informal setting. Um, maybe somebody's got a presentation, but often it's a conversational tone, uh, similar to a meetup and you get the opportunity to ask experts questions and stuff. So. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. Well, and it, it seems like it's me broadcasting a bit there, but often people will ask a question and I don't know the answer and someone else will chime in with answers. And so people are talking to each other, which is nice. And sometimes I do bring on, you know, famous book authors like I, I brought on Brian Aachen last year. You might have heard. <laughs> Let's talk about his pie test book.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So and that's definitely why I harangued you on Pi test. So yeah. <laughs> But, um, hey, I got to get back to work, and you probably have things to do. So thanks a lot for coming on the show today.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot, Brian.
0: Thank you for listening, and thank you to our sponsors, TalkPython.fm and PythonBytes.fm, the um, two wonderful podcasts that I think you'll like if you check them out. Thanks.